Um, I recently heard a clip of a Francis Chan sermon, and in it he said something that was really, really cool. He said, if you take just 10 seconds before you pray each time and recognize who it is you're praying to, it will change your prayer life. And I thought that was amazing. So I, I just want to do that right now, and I'm going to pray again. It's really short, but can we just take 10 seconds and recognize who it is we just worshiped, who it is we're learning about, and who it is that we're living for when we leave this place? God, you are so, so good, so almighty, so wonderful. And we've invited you here into this place right now, and I ask that you just hide me behind the cross. You have a message prepared for each individual here and for your church. I just ask that you give us ears to hear that. Block out anything that I say that is not of you, Lord. Amen. So full disclosure, I am typically a three-point sermon kind of guy, which if you don't know what that means, basically you read the passage, you pull out three really good points, and you present that to the crowd, and it's really easy. You can remember three points. And when I was preparing for this sermon, I just, I, I couldn't do it. I was telling, Don knows I've been wrestling with this. I told the guys before, I just, I kept going through. I'd come to the scripture, and um it would be like, this is great, here's my point, this would be really good, and then I'd come back to it and be like, wow, I didn't even see this before, this is really great, this is what we wanna hear, and come back again, and it just kept happening over and over, and honestly, it didn't really start coming together um, until I saw this video that I wanna talk to you about here in a second, but just know and be patient with me as we walk through these passages, it's not gonna be a three-point sermon, and as I was worshiping just now, I realized we're gonna talk about Paul's conversion, and there's different steps in Paul's conversion. And it, it, it was the Lord that kind of told me, maybe people here are in different spots in that conversion. They need to hear different things. So maybe that's why I couldn't find three, three points. So if I say something that is totally off the wall, but that's what you need here, um, I just, I hope that you get that, and I hope you're patient with me. So we're gonna talk about Paul's conversion experience. And so the first thing I thought when I was asked to preach about this is like, well, we need to know about Paul's life. We really need to know what was going on in Paul's life before he converted, and then we can dive in what happened to him while he was having this interaction with Jesus on the Damascus Road. And then we can look look at what changed in him in the future him going forth. If you don't know, Paul has a lot of words in the New Testament, and so he, um, we need to understand him, and that's what we're going to hopefully do, understand this conversion experience today. Obviously, to do this exhaustively would be like a whole sermon series, so I'm going to do the best that I can, and I ask that you wrestle with that when you come, or when you go from here. Here are four things that I think Paul, that happened to Paul when he was converted. I'm going to come back to these at the end, but I want you to kind of watch out for these things. First, he was humbled by God. He was incredibly, literally thrown down um, on his knees, blinded and humbled before God. Number two, he was undeservingly and wonderfully loved by God. Number three, he was obedient to the direction that came from God. And number four, 
He then lived out of the fruit of the Holy Spirit by becoming a core leader in the establishment of the church, which I think is pretty cool. We're going to talk about Acts 9. Sorry, Acts 9. I've been all over Acts here recently. Acts 9. Um, and he, there, there they refer to Paul as Saul. So I want to just clarify that a little bit. Who here has been told that Saul, that we're going to talk about here, changed his name to Paul after he converted as his Christian name. Has anyone been told that? Did you know that's not actually true? (laughs) Saul was his Hebrew name, as was very common in the time period. Paul was his Greek name, his Roman name, his Roman name. Yes, Roman name, I think I'm right. Um, But he carried these two names. A lot of people did. They carried this Hebrew name, they carried their uh, Greek name, And that's what Paul did. Now, Luke kind of uses it as a transition period or a transition way, a literary way to recognize this. But I'm going to refer to him as Paul. But when I'm reading in Scripture, Saul, we're talking about the same person. He never changed his name. It's the same person. And so there you can understand that and take that little bit of Bible trivia with you that he didn't actually change his name. He carried them both. But that was very common in that time. So I follow a lot of different ministries on social media and stuff, and Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research, they do this thing every two years, and it's called the State of Theology Survey. Now, there's a lot to that. We're not going to get too much into that. Essentially, what it is, is uh, it kind of measures trends both in our culture and in our church. And this is United States-specific church. It, it shows, they uh, survey a whole bunch of evangelical Christians, and we kind of can see what trends are going on in the church. Here are some that I found interesting, and was actually kind of surprised on these ones. 94% of evangelicals believe that sex outside of marriage is a sin. Pretty good. I would say that. Yeah, 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 that's, 94. So a higher than what I thought. Pretty good, pretty good. 91% of evangelicals believe that abortion is a sin. Not going to get into an argument, but, you know, I think we can most agree on that. Around 70% of evangelicals believe that homosexuality is a sin. Okay, so the majority on all of those. And normal, normally people would be like, yeah, that's really good. However, here's where it gets a little concerning. Two-thirds, around 75% of evangelicals, believe that they were born good in the eyes of God. Yeah. So that's anti-biblical, both Old Testament and New Testament. We know that we're born into sin. We need a Savior. That's Jesus Christ. But 75% of evangelicals don't believe that. Over half of evangelicals believe that God accepts worship of all religions to include Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Also anti-biblical, kind of concerning. And the final one, the most concerning one, 42, so almost half of evangelical surveying believe that Jesus, while a good teacher, was not God. So, I was, this is the video I was talking about. This ex-evangelist, do you guys know what that is? Uh, someone who's left the church, maybe was a pastor or leader at some point, and they left the church, and now they're actively trying to communicate why the church is bad and why they left the church and the problems in the church and all this kind of stuff. It's watching this uh, video. This is a TikTok, actually. Um, and she said... She looked at these numbers, and she came to the conclusion that Christianity is more of just a culture 
rather than a belief system. She said that Christians are dropping their core beliefs but holding on to some of the toxic behaviors, which is why the church is so dangerous. And I thought about it, and based on those numbers, she's not really that wrong. I'm kind of making an assumption here, but I would say that the people who believe that abortion and homosexuality and sex before marriage is wrong, those people that believe that, but yet reject the deity of Christ and reject who, what worship God, um, what he accepts and who we are as sinners, I would assume that they think they're going to heaven, which means that they believe that their works, if they do these things really, really well, if we're out there advocating against homosexuality or against sex before marriage, if we do this really, really well, it doesn't really matter what we believe about Jesus, I'm sure we're going to heaven because that's what the Bible says. They're only believing part of the Bible. But she's not really that, long, or that wrong. United States, uh, Church culture, culture has become just that kind of a culture, and then no wonder she thinks that our, talk, our, our, our behaviors are so toxic because we believe things are anti-world, and if we've got no reason, no foundation to believe these things, it doesn't make much sense for us to believe them. So I saw that video this week after I had almost all of this sermon written, and I was really confused, and, and I started to look at it in light of Paul's conversion, and it actually started to make a lot of sense. Um, but just be aware of those trends. Now, before I get into this, what I am not saying, so don't take away me saying this, there are certain things that go on in our culture that us as Christians have to be against or for, and it's good and proper for us to remain behind those beliefs. And sometimes we're supposed to be advocates for it, and sometimes we're supposed to condemn it, if that makes sense. I'm not trying to say it's okay if we believe you know, say abortion, for example, um, it's okay. we can believe whatever we want on that. No, there's a pretty, there's some significant truth behind that, and we need to hold on to that. Don't hear me say that. I'm more concerned about the core beliefs of our faith that we need to be concerned about before, and I'll explain this, before we're concerned about all the right actions. Because that is what Paul experienced. So can you turn to chapter, Acts chapter 9, Verses 1 and 2. And what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through this a couple of verses at a time and kind of look at what Paul goes through. So chapter 1. Meanwhile, Saul, while still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that if, any, that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that is Christianity, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay, so like I said, we have to understand what, what Paul is like here. What is his mindset here? I asked that question when preparing for this. So here's what we know about Paul. And I'm, gonna, I'm jumping around to different scriptures. Um, you know, Acts is written, if you, if you do it chronologically, his letters are written and stuck in the middle through Acts as we go through Acts. And so he talks about this a little bit. Um, you can follow me if you'd like, or you can get with me afterwards if you want some of these verses. But here's what we know about Paul before he met Jesus. He says in Philippians 3 that he was born a Jew of the tri tribe of Benjamin and circumcised on the eighth day. He was born of Pharisees. Not only was he born of Pharisees, but he was trained under Gamal Gamaliel, which 
I'll explain a little bit more on that in a minute. Um, but he's essentially one of the most influential Jewish leaders of the first century, one of the, the, the best, if you will. So not only was he born into this Pharisee sect of the Jews, but he was trained by the best, which makes him, as what he says, Hebrews of Hebrews. He said, in regards to the law, he was Hebrews of Hebrews in regards to the law, and a Pharisee as for zeal. He says that in Philippians. Paul considered himself to be absolutely perfect at following the law. In fact, he even went as far to say, as for righteousness based on the law, I am faultless. He also said, if someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. So he was pretty full of himself before he, uh, <laughs> before he met Jesus. Um, he talked so much about being born and taught and raised by Pharisees, I had to go and look exactly what I needed to learn about the Pharisees a little bit. Now that would take a long time. I'm only gonna point out a couple of things. Um, the primary goal of the Pharisees and of Paul here is really just to preserve the written and oral traditions of the law or the Old Testament, the Torah. They expected both correct interpretation and correct behavior based on the law. And they considered themselves kind of set apart. So Paul thought he was the best at this. He was the leader of this. He was set apart. And really, he was just trying to preserve the law. So you kind of see some good intentions here. He has good intentions, but he takes it so far. And I'm going to make the argument that it becomes so evil because he's not being led by the Holy Spirit. Hopefully you can see where this is going a little bit. At least he thought it was perfect. Um, he, like other Pharisees, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah that was talked about in the Old Testament who came to fulfill the law. Yet this movement, the way Christianity was growing like crazy, he saw these Christians as a threat, so what did he do? He imprisoned them, and we saw that he murdered him last week, no, two weeks ago. We talked about um, Stephen being stoned, and, and Paul was there overseeing that. So my question at this point already is, when you rely on yourself to uphold the law of God, you become incredibly full with pride. I talk about pride a lot, but you become filled, you become filled with pride. This idea of like what Paul had, I'm better than you, and you know it, and I know it. I'm better than you, I'm better at doing all this. Um, you fail to love others the way that Christ loves you, because Paul was not loving his fellow man the way that God and Christ loved them. And your pursuit becomes, um, your pursuit of whatever it is that you're um, pursuing, whether it be um, abortion or no sex before marriage, but it kind of becomes your God instead of God being the God and leading it. You make that your God and you rely on your own ability to go fulfill it. And it becomes so corrupted. Here's an example, and I'm gonna, I'm about to step on some toes when I, when I go here to an example, okay? Here's what drives me nuts. And it, and it has to do with politics, okay? A, a Christian, and I, I'm thinking of a very specific friend that I have. He claims to be a Christian. You know, when it comes to abortion political issue, he's posting all these verses. When it comes to homosexuality, he's posting all these verses. And then when it comes to talking about our president, it's F Joe Biden. Is that the fruit of the Holy Spirit? No. And I bring that up, you know, it goes to both sides. Um, we, we can't 
led by the Spirit, we can't curse those that are against us, okay? Now, there's a time and a place to correct and hold accountable. I'm not saying that there's not. But that is a great example that I see so often. I see the flags flying and all this kind of stuff, and that's not of God. You, I, I'm sorry. Um, if, if that's you, I... Um, just know that is not of God. That's not what we should do. That's just one example. But we all know that if you are butting heads with someone politically and your, your gut tells you to curse them, that's not of God, okay? That is an example of relying on yourself to fulfill something good. And, and um, I wonder if Christ would say that, that he knows people like this and he's living in them, okay? I say this because I used to be this way, okay? I'm not preaching at you. When I was in college, um, definitely this used to be me, okay? So I was very humbled in this too. So this is what Paul, we have a picture now, what Paul is like without Christ. He's pursuing something relatively good, or at least he's trying to, but it's become incredibly corrupt, incredibly corrupt because he's relying on his own self to fulfill it. So, verse three. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Okay, now that's really important, so we're gonna stop there. The Pharisees, they waited for this moment. They thought if they could pray and be good enough that God would come down and speak to them, and man, was that a badge of honor if he could. So I just imagine right now, before anything happened, Paul is walking on his road, and his light shined around him. He's like, yes. I have, I have reached it. God is going to speak to me. I have done it right. So he waited for this. Um, and then he fell to the ground. He heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul says. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Wow. Okay, so in these few words, suddenly... Paul has this interaction with the Lord of Lords, um, and he gets a taste of the Lord's presence, and suddenly he realizes just how imperfect he is. He can't, we see in the Old Testament lots of examples of people interacting with or having a taste of the presence of God, and they're either struck dead, blinded, fall to the ground, they've got to turn their back to it, they're not, we're not worthy of that, and Paul discovers this firsthand. I imagine that Paul was probably ready to hear something like, well done, good and faithful servant. <laughs> Instead, he was immediately humbled. And Paul's world, you gotta imagine, he was born a Pharisee. This is his livelihood. He pursued this from the moment he was born. That's a point that he was making in Philippians. He's like, this was my life. And suddenly it was flipped completely upside down in an instant in just a few little words. All these things he thought he was doing right, not a word. Instead, God condemned him. Why are you persecuting me? And then he recognizes that it's Jesus, the one that he's actively trying to destroy, this movement that he's actively trying to destroy. He falls to the ground, he's struck blind, and like I said, I imagine this is because of this small taste of the presence of God that he gets. And he just realizes and experiences how almighty, how awesome, how all-powerful the presence of God is. It's so holy, so magnificent that Paul, like any of us, being so unworthy of being in the presence of God, fell down and was struck blind. I can't imagine what, like, the fear that Paul was feeling in that moment. 
I think of it, here's a more practical example, is if you're working or maybe as a kid you're with your parents and they call you, your boss calls you in or your parent calls you in and you're like, hey, you know what, I've been doing pretty good. I'm gonna get an award. I've been, doing, I've been doing pretty good at my job. Maybe I'll get a promotion. And the boss sits you down or parents sits you down and just like scolding. Like nothing that you've done well is even acknowledged and it's just scolding. I, I just, that's kind of what I imagine, what Paul's going through, but just to the extreme. So, let's keep going. Jesus says to Paul, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anything. Here's what is amazing to me in this experience. God had every right to strike Paul dead just like he did Ananias and Sapphira and give him a one-way ticket to hell because he deserved it. Um, Think of it like this way. For those of you who are married or have a significant other, think of someone who is actively trying to hurt your partner. Like they're, I mean, physically, they're out to kill them. And maybe they've even got to him and, and marred him and beat him up. And can you imagine how mad, I can't imagine how mad I would be as a husband, but can you imagine how upset and frustrated you would be? Well, that's what Paul was doing to Christ's bride, the church. He was actively trying to destroy it. And Jesus God had every right to destroy him for that, to have his justice done. Yet, here's where we see God's love. In an amazing act of mercy and grace, instead of exercising perfect justice, which he had every right to do, he tells Paul, get up, I have a plan for you. In this little interaction with God, uh, or with Christ, Paul just experienced the greatest amount of fear and the most extraordinary act of love that he could ever, possi- ever possibly imagine. So I want you to take just a moment right now and reflect on your life and your relationship with God. I'll talk about this fear a little bit. I'm probably going to step on some toes. Some might disagree with me. And this is a whole other sermon in and of itself. But when you consider, when we took that 10 seconds and considered who God was, or when you think of God and who God is, are you a little bit scared of God? I think we should be. I really think that there should be an element of fear when we think of God. God is so perfect. He is so perfect. He is the creator of the universe. And we just aren't. There should be a little bit element of fear. You see that throughout scripture as well. Now, we also see God's love and his mercy and his patience and his grace. You can hold both of those things. You can fear who God is and rest in his grace. Those are two really good things to have. And I'm gonna make the argument, hopefully, that you experience both of those things, okay? Um, This is just what happens, this grace and fear when our life of sin interacts with Jesus, with Christ. When you read all of Paul's letters, you can see that Paul is unwavering on two central themes. His own unworthiness for Christ, amazing love, and it makes sense now because we kind of see what Paul experiences when he interacts with Christ. Um where his unworthiness is unveiled and Christ's love is displayed. Paul writes to Timothy, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. We're going to move on to verse 8. 
Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. So they led him by hand to Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. Maybe this is where you are in your relationship with God, especially for those who gave their life to Christ last week. Maybe this is where you are. You've experienced this awesome grace and the forgiveness of your sins, and now it's kind of quiet. We have no reason to believe that God had, inter- or Jesus, God had any interaction with Paul during those three days. Um, but what he did, first of all, was he listened and he obeyed God's command. He said, go into the city, Paul did. Um, if Christ is calling you to do something, do it. Now, um, and we'll talk about that here a little bit, but that's what Paul did, and then he waits in the city. I wish Paul would have given us kind of a, maybe a letter or, or some kind of documentation of what happened in these three days. We know that he prayed, um, it says that in verse 11, but can you imagine having this amazing interaction with Jesus? Your life was broken. Everything that you thought you believed was turned upside down. You experienced this amazing love. You were called by God to go on this mission that you don't know what it is, and in silence. But what do we see God doing in the silence? Verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias, yes, Lord, he said. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In his vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come in a place and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and and their king and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother, Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, there was a lot going on, I'm sure, in Paul's life in these three days. He did see the vision uh, that told him that Ananias would come, but I can just imagine all this undoing of the things that he thought he believed happening. He's like going to the scriptures. Remember, he's, he's the best. He's the, he knows the scriptures the best. And he's like, what did I miss that, <laughs> that would lead me to here? And like, can you imagine having the guilt of meeting Jesus? And he's like, you have been persecuting me. And then coming from just watching the stoning of Stephen and the guilt that he must have been feeling, he's probably wrecked in those three days. However, like I said, this is where you might be. Just because God is silent does not mean that he's not at work. All this was happening while Paul was having his three days of fasting and prayer. God was orchestrating this amazing plan with Ananias, and then they came together and started this huge mission of the furthering of the church of Jesus Christ, which is just amazing. So some of you need to hear that today. Paul is... Paul learned something that we all need to learn, and that God has a sovereign plan at work in the world. And my question for you is, what is the role in your plan? Or what is, the, what is your role in that plan? 
First of all, we do need to recognize the inability to save the world on our own. This is just the truth. Without Christ, we are nothing. Without Christ, we are nothing. Our plans are fruitless and we're gonna fall short. You can be the loudest anti-abortion activist, but without submitting to the Holy Spirit's will, what good are you doing? You can be an outspoken and great social justice warrior, but without submitting to Jesus' will, your fruit is garbage. It just is. We can speak in tongues of men or of angels, but if we do not have love, the word agape, love that comes from the Holy Spirit, we are a resounding gong or a it's clanging symbol. And maybe, just maybe, that is why so many people are leaving the church today. And maybe that's why people like the ex-evangelist I was talking about earlier um, is so offended by our toxic culture. You know, we hear a lot about how the church is hypocrites. And when we don't have Christ in our life, when we don't hold on to that faith, when we don't understand that we need a Savior, and then when we are saved, the Holy Spirit's living through us, when we don't have that, we are hypocrites. We're hypocrites because we're walking around thinking that my actions are better than yours, and that's, that's it. Instead, it should be, I was right where you are, and God met me and loved me, and let me show you what that looks like. There's so much hearing of gongs and symbols in our world today, on social media, in politics, on the news, in churches. And I wonder if it's because less than 50% of people believe that Jesus is even Lord. And that's why things like that are so much more important because I promise you, if you recognize that Jesus is Lord, and you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit outflows through you, all of the actions will take care of themselves because it's the Holy Spirit working through you, not you working alone. Okay, wrapping up. A few questions, and then maybe a little encouragement of what you can do. <laughs> I'm trying not to be Jonathan Edwards. Have you been humble before God like Paul? Have you had this moment when you recognize that by myself, I am nothing. I am nothing without you, God. Paul calls himself, the NIV translates it um, garbage, but the more realistic translation is uh, dung or the S word. Um, <laughs> before God, that's what he is. However, when you had that interaction, then do you believe, and, and do you believe now that you are wonderfully loved by Jesus? And your actions won't stop that. Your actions also won't gain it, but it's not gonna stop Jesus' love. Okay, so you've answered yes, maybe to both of those questions. Moving on to the other one. Are you then obeying the direction the Spirit has for your life? Once you've had this recognition of your worthlessness, but then also recognition of your worth through Christ, 
He does give us commandments in Scripture. Now, are you following those commandments? Paul did. He listened to the Holy Spirit and, and um, Jesus' words, and he followed them to the T. And side note, isn't it really cool? Paul was like, he wanted to keep the oral tradition of the law so bad. Like, he was so strict on that, all that doctrine and that theology and everything. But then that, that's who God used to establish such important doctrine for our church today. I thought that was pretty cool. He uses Paul's strengths once he's corrected it through the Holy Spirit to kind of write through all these letters. He's going through all these different churches across the world at the time, and he's correcting. He's like, no, this is where we need to go. No, this is where we need to go. Or you're doing really, really well. And it's really cool that Paul, I think, gets used to, to do that. He uses Paul's strengths still. Um, that was a side note. And last question, are you living out the fruit of the Spirit by dying to yourself daily. Paul talks about what he has to do, and, and it's dying to your flesh every single day, and that's submitting to the will of the Holy Spirit and allowing him to move and go through, through you. The most important part is that you have to have faith that our Lord is, is the Savior of our lives, the Savior of this world. We can't lose this as a church and as an individual. Paul responded to Christ in faith, and he went on missions to build the church like I've talked about. And he did that in faith. And the most important part that we can do as a church is have that faith. And I was going to go through it and explain in my own words what that is. But instead, I'm going to read a bit of Hebrews, because it explains it way better than I do. And this is where we're going to end tonight. My point being, if you have faith, the actions will follow you. If you have faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit will work through you, the actions will take care of themselves because that's, the, that's God working out his sovereign plan through you, not you doing it on your own. Hebrews 10, and this is going to be a little bit, but, but hear the words to this because it's so encouraging about faith and what God has already done in faith and what he's going to do with you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new living, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have great priests over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience, from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how many, I'm sorry, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. See how that comes after faith, having faith? Good deeds comes after having faith. Not giving up meeting together as some, and he continues. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to chapter uh, 11. He talks about faith. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen, what was not made out of what, is, what was visible. And then if you're in the book, you go through this long exhortation about what faith does. And I'm just going to skip around, and it's just amazing what he does. He says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned, Abraham reasoned with God, could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau regarding to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was blessed, each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, 
when his end was near, spoke about the excess of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him from three months, for he was born because they saw there was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as for greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood. By faith, the people of Israel passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egypts tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she was welcomed the spies, was not killed to those who were disobedient. And scripture goes on to say, we can't even talk about the rest. What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, about David and Samuel and the prophets. All these things were done by faith. The actions will follow, I promise. I'm just going to leave it there. Can we just pray as we go out? Almighty God, right now, we just ask that you provide us with a humble spirit and faith that you have done what you've said you've done and that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. Lord, we see through the life of Paul that, and the life of many in Scripture that, that you give us, that faith is so important, and you promise that the deeds will follow, the right things will follow when we have faith. You promise us the Holy Spirit who's going to work through us, and Lord, we know that you have a plan. We don't need to come up with our own plan. Lord, I recognize that there's some in this room that may struggle with faith. They might have a lot of doubt in their minds. And partly it's because our culture and our world feeds lies into their mind and twists words. And But Lord, Satan has no power here. I ask that you give them the faith of Paul and the faith of all of those that we talked about. Lord, we know that some in this room, some in this room are suffering, whether that because of sickness, whether it because of mental illness, whether that because of anything, Lord. We ask that you give them faith to persevere. We love you, God. Amen.